All right, welcome to another episode of the Brain Food Show. Is this a Christmas episode? It's like, it's Christmassy. I always think of Charles Dickens in winter, and I know we're talking about uh, Tiny Tim and a Christmas Carol, which I very much like that there's a typo in the notes of the Christ Man's Carol, <laughs> um, which I imagined was a, a retelling from the perspective of Jesus. <laughs> or a typo. Is this a Christmas... <laughs> Is this a Christmas episode? Eh, kind of. I mean, but it's not holy Christmas. I mean, it's about a lot of other things, actually, but sort of leading up to the... Uh, Impetus for A Christmas Carol, which had, you know, actually kind of not a lot to do with Christmas. It was something something else, but use Christmas for, uh, you know, the vehicle. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, as as always, um, it, I feel like if this was released in July, it would definitely not be a Christmas episode. But the fact that we're releasing this in December is definitely kind of going to have that. Because there's, there's like Christmas decorations in the stores. It's, when's Thanksgiving? We're recording this just before Thanksgiving, yep, I want to say. It's in two days. So you don't have Christmas decorations, right? You oh, have no, this, they, like, restrictions, still, so you can't... Yeah, they, they still put uh, them in stores, and some people put them up, but, uh, yeah, a lot of people wait till at, the day after Christmas, or uh, day after Thanksgiving. Which I always liked. Yeah. Because here, it's like, really, it's the, it, you could get into mid-September, and people are, like, putting up little mm. Christmas trees in stores and being like, oh. hey, don't forget Christmas is around the corner, buy gifts. I mean, so like, there is literally a quarter of the year left. There's there's some of that, but but because of Halloween and Thanksgiving, it's more, you know, stages. Which I like. Yeah. It's like a restriction. Oh, yeah. Anyway, today, quick fact, main episode, follow up at the end. I think we're, we're settling into this, this format now, and I quite mm-hmm. like it. So lead us off. What's the quick fact today? What are so we, today, what are we, yeah, go on, today, go on, take it away. We're looking at what was actually wrong with Tiny Tim that money in the 19th century could have cured. You know, because obviously medical, you know, medical science at the time wasn't exact. They tended oh. to do more harm than good a lot of the time. So, uh, what what could you throw money at? <laughs> it wasn't lots of leeches. Yeah, it's lots of leeches. <laughs> what 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 could they have thrown money at to actually fix whatever was wrong with Tiny Tim? And the, and so it turns out. Can I guess? Yeah. It's got to be something to do with, like, not treatment, because we can put most of that out of the window. Mm-hmm. So it's got to be something to do with, like, environment. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Am I, am I close? Am I on the right track? to be on the right track. I mean, obviously, this is one of those things that, okay. I mean, Charles Dickens himself didn't, you know, come out and say, so was, there's some level of speculation, but uh, pretty good... Uh, pretty solid speculation here by one Dr. Russell W. Chesney, who wrote a paper on this, actually, Environmental Factors in Tiny Tim's Near-Fatal Illness, uh, published, in the, what? published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics. Uh, so actually... You can call me Dr. Simon. Yeah, a, proper, uh. a proper research paper on this. And so basically he starts in the paper by looking at... So poor in London at the time, they lived obviously very filthy, crowded conditions in uh, very soot-filled skies because everyone used coal to heat and that releases yeah. a lot of sulfur particles and of course you know around london's known for its cloudiness anyway uh so this just all yeah. made it just didn't get a lot of sun exposure and so um you know filtered out a lot of Are you kidding like there was enough soot in the sky to really affect the amount of sun exposure people were getting yeah yeah well i mean you think That's if everyone crazy. was burning coal you know in the winter most all the time uh and London, yeah, it's like in the Matrix, and they blocked out the sky. Yeah. Or and so, to, to... so yeah, this, and I mean, also the poor, the poor kids and stuff also didn't get a lot of sunlight because they were too busy working in factories and you know <laughs> stuff like that. So that that's also Gosh. a problem. Yeah. Uh, but I don't, this uh, this doctor did not mention that part of things. But 
that was basically the idea. So it filters out a lot of the UVA and UVB light. And of course, the latter there, the um, absorption of that helps to synthesize vitamin D. And so if you, that's how your body gets vitamin D if you're not getting it through your diet. And so of course, the these type of foods that you get uh, vitamin D from like fish and, you know, liver, milk or eggs and stuff, this was not something the poor people were eating uh, a lot. So no. They tended to be highly susceptible to rickets, which was um, actually called the English disease at one point. Um, this is where your bones like bend and stuff, right? Yeah, because like I've seen pictures of this with the Boeing, yeah. Boeing, I think is what they called it. Yeah, so Boeing exactly, because it, it just makes your bones really weak and kind of a little pliable. And then if you're growing, if you're a child growing into that, it just kind of, uh, you know, stunts your growth, makes them all kind of like you say, you can have like bow legged and stuff like that. And you're also susceptible to bone yeah. fractures. And just general bone pain and uh, it makes it painful for walking and things like this. And so this, this looks like maybe what Tiny Tim was suffering from, but that's not going to kill you per se. Um, so what would actually kill him? And it turns out rickets also makes you uh, more susceptible to various respiratory diseases like pneumonia and tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. And so this, of course, Bob was only making 15 shillings a week. And um, also the sister Martha earned some amount as a hat maker's apprentice, but uh, not clear. But that actually is only... An Bob was the dad. Yeah, Bob. Bob, who worked for Scrooge. And uh, that was only enough to buy um, about four loaves of bread, it turns out, a week. And so that, not getting good food there. So, That's... so yeah, so generally, Scrooge starts giving him more money and helping to support the family. This would give Tim, you know, better diet, nutrition in general, probably access to fish and dairy and stuff like that, which would get him vitamin D, which might have forestalled him ever getting tuberculosis or pneumonia and things like this, or being less susceptible, I should say. Um, and just generally boosting uh -huh. his immune system and probably also, you know, trips to the country as uh, the more affluent did back then to get fresh air and stuff like that would give extra sunshine and all that to help Tim as well. And so that... This would have been my guess. Like he would be like suffering from like asthma or something. Mm -hmm. And then it's like by going... Although he had that like leg issues, right? Like he was... Yeah. As I know, I've only seen the movies where he's like holding the crutches. Yeah, exactly. So um, that would be like the rickets or whatever. And then the, the idea here was that, that later... At some point, he would be, you know, get pneumonia or something like that because of his weakened immune system, because of nutrition and the rickets making him more susceptible to that. Uh, and then he would die from that. And But if he had the nutrition in the interim, maybe he doesn't get that or maybe he recovers from it um, where he wouldn't have otherwise. And so this is the idea. But you might, yeah, for the more uh, medically, medically knowledgeable out there, might be thinking, but wait a minute, uh -huh. did they actually know what caused rickets back then or what cured rickets? And it turns out, no, they did not. This was actually kind of the late 1910s when, you know, humans definitively discovered kind of what, what caused it and how to cure it. But Christmas Carol was obviously written in 1843, so did Charles Dickens know anything about this? And it turns out he did, as, we, as did others. There was some speculation about what, what would cause rickets, and it was um, some belief that there was some sort of nutritional uh, deficiency playing a role. And Dickens, actually, we have a quote from Dickens from, it was a little bit later, a couple decades later, but... In 1865, Dickens wrote, he says, one of the worst forms of scrofula, uh, sure. rat ratchetism or rickets, arises under the influence of chilly dwellings and insufficient alimentation, nourishment, and milk deprivation in infants. So, okay, so he's kind of like halfway there. Yeah, so this is why, uh, like the chilly dwellings, yeah. <laughs> if your home is cold. So it seems like that is probably what Dickens was thinking at the time. He would, of course, been very familiar with the symptoms of rickets and all that because lots of, lots of, lots of English children had that. So, do you think am I am I going to get rickets? Because <laughs> I, 
I don't know. I don't spend a lot of time outside. I pretty much, you know, especially now in winter, it's dark when I wake up. I sit at home and then I go to work and then I spend all day at work just in my office. And then I come home like on a tram and then I go inside (laughs) and then maybe I go outside. But it's like it's winter. I'm going to like a pub or the cinema or a restaurant or to a friend's house or something like this. It's like I'm not really hanging out outside very much. Well, but see, then you, you, you know, you have a quite good diet, I'm sure. And that's going to help you, you know, it keeps your head from getting sunburned and whatnot. I'm not eating a lot of liver and fish, to be honest. Well, but you know, dairy products in general, things, there's lots of things with vitamin D. And actually, there's so many foods that they just put vitamin D in because vitamin D is actually good for you for a variety of reasons. And uh, so it's just like thrown in everything, it seems like these days. So, hmm. okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, good. Good to know I won't be getting any weird bowing legs and people are like, oh, you've got the English disease. <laughs> Classic. Uh, so, of course, I have the English disease. So, we have a website for this podcast. You can find it at brainfood.fm. And this website we made with Wix. And Wix is uh, the sponsor of the show today. You've heard me talk about them before. Basically, they allow you to create a website for your podcast, if you've got one of those, or just a personal brand, a business. Maybe you're getting married and you want a fancy website for that, or, you know, whatever else you might think of. They allow you to make all sorts of websites. Now, building the website for this podcast on Wix, I got some personal experience with it. It's, uh, I know nothing about building websites, but building a website with Wix is just incredibly, incredibly easy and enjoyable as well. You just, you go into, you, you, it's all in your web browser, and then you just drag different elements, and you click on create pages and all of this stuff, and then before you know it, it I think it took me like 20 minutes to kind of get the basic structure of our website together and it was looking pretty good as well. I used a template, like they have these really nice looking templates because honestly, if I started from scratch, it would look terrible. So it's great they have those templates. I drag and drop everything into place. I link up the domain, brainfood.fm, and you can go there and see it. And that's made by me, someone who does not have a great deal of technical knowledge, especially when it comes to building websites. Anyway, Wix. They offer unlimited pages, top-grade hosting for free. You can upgrade to one of their premium plans for as little as just $5 a month, and you'll get even more. So you can just go to wix.com forward slash go forward slash brain food to get started. I mean, why not? Like I say, you can start for free. Just that's again, wix.com forward slash go forward slash brain food back to the show tiny tim this is, often you put these random bonus facts in that kind of very tangentially <laughs> relate but there's kind of a nice segue here on the note of tiny tim because yeah, it's interesting to note that if you really look at the story of a christmas carol tiny tim actually is a very minor character in a lot of ways but it turns out this this character was the one that charles dickens wanted everyone to pay the most attention to and importantly he wrote him as a very wholesome, like very wholesome heart, a uh, very, very good, mm-hmm. good kid. You know, he's like he's pretty, he's wholesome. So as for, so why did he want everyone to look at Tiny Tim here? And for that, we're going to go back to the beginnings of Charles Dickens' life and then sort of build up to the impetus for the uh, Christmas Carol coming out in the first place. Um, so starting out, Dickens was born on February 7th, mm-hmm. 1812 in rural England uh, to sort of a middle class-ish family uh, that ended up being turned impoverished himself. And this was uh, largely because of his father named John was a clerk, but he also was just really bad with money managing finances. Uh, and so he ends up he, he overspending a little. Yeah, a lot. Uh, so uh, <laughs> enough to end up in prison. Yeah, Marsh. And I know like going to prison for like debt back in the day was a yeah. thing. Yeah. But this seems like a terrible idea. Like if you owe 
if I if I like owe my credit card company like thousands of dollars, they'll be like, okay, you're gonna go to debtors prison. I'd be like, this is the worst place for me to possibly be able to pay off this credit card debt. Yeah. Yes, I can't spend it any, spend anymore, but you're not gonna allow that anyway. Surely you want me out there working yeah. and trying to pay this back rather than in prison where there's just no shot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this and what's funny about this at this point, it wasn't just you that went to debtors prison. Your whole family tended to join you in the jail because, you know, didn't have any place to stay and whatnot. So they would just uh, join, except for in this case, in this case, Charles. Charles Dickens did not join them because he was a strapping young boy at 12 years old. No need to live with his parents anymore. Oh, that's big enough to like pull a plow or like make some machinery. Yeah, he, he was he was deemed old enough to make his own way in the world. So he's just whatever. You're not going to join the family. <laughs> 12 years old. Yeah, exactly. So he moved into very cheap lodgings away from his family, um, got taken out of school, obviously, because there was no money for that and got sent to a job at Warren's Shoe Blackening Factory. And this this he would work. Get this six days per week, uh, pasting labels on jars. That's all he did. Jars of shoe polish, just pasting the label over and over again. No, the hours on yeah. end, six days a week. Uh, and his weekly pay was six shillings, which is about 22 pounds or $29 today. And that was what he had to entirely support himself. That's, uh, wait, that's adjusting for inflation? Uh-huh. Yeah. Wait, it's not a lot of money. <laughs> no, uh, no, it wasn't. Was he living there? Uh, no, he lived in... Was this like a, a workshop jobby or was he... No, if I remember correctly, he he lived like in someone's essentially like their attic kind of thing. Just kind of had a little yeah. little bed, a pallet to lay on. See, when I was 12 years old and if I was making 22 pounds a week, yeah. I'd be like, that's pretty good. Yeah. That's like an extra 100 pounds. That's like 100 pounds a month yeah. to like 12-year-old Simon. That's some serious pocket change. Yeah. But... Then again, I didn't have to pay my rent and buy all my food. It's like, just imagine being 12 years old. I just walking around like, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm working here, except my voice hadn't broken yet. Well, that sounded like and looked like a child. Well, on the plus side, he worked like every hour of the day. So there wasn't really a lot of time to go about, you know, spending money and stuff, uh, which is probably good. because That's true. That's a very good point. Because at 12 also, he was, you know, no one was, you know, budgeting for him he just had his money he would get and then as a 12 year old had to be responsible enough to you know budget appropriately to get food and you know continue to play pay for his lodgings i would not have been capable of this no i'd be like "Ooh, sweets <laughs> exactly and then so appalling work conditions obviously were just the the name of the game back then and uh, and also yeah. occasional physical abuse just just because that was a thing uh, but it actually turns out this what dickens would later welcome to the past yeah Dickens would later talk about more of the psychological trauma of the whole thing. What really bothered him was mm -hmm. that nobody cared of his plight. Like, it was just like, whatever, that's that's life, you know, 12-year-old Charles Dickens. And so, yeah, he, he has a nice, uh, lengthy uh, little quote on this. Are you ready for this? It is wonderful to me how I could have been so easily cast away at such an age. It is wonderful to me that even after my descent into the poor little drudge I had been since we came to London, no one had compassion enough on me. A child of singular abilities, quick, eager, delicate, and soon hurt bodily or mentally, to suggest that something might have been spared, as certainly it might have been, to place me at any common school. Our friends, I take it, were tired out. No one made any sign. My father and mother were quite satisfied. They could hardly have been more so if I had been 20 years of age, distinguished at grammar school and going to Cambridge. The blacking warehouse was the last house on the left side of the way at Old Hungerford Stairs. It was a crazy, tumble-down old house, abutting, of course, on the river and literally overrun with rats. 
its wainscoted rooms and its rotten floors and staircase, and the old grey rats swarming down in the cellars, and the sound of their squeaking and scuffing coming up the stairs at all times, and the dirt and decay of the place rise up visibly before me, as if I were there again. The counting house was on the first floor, looking over the coal barges in the river. There was a recess in it, in which I was to sit and work. My work was to cover the pots of paste blacking, first with a piece of oil paper, and then with a piece of blue paper, to tie them round with a string, and then to clip the paper close and neat all round, until it looked as smart as a pot of ointment from an apothecary's shop. When a certain number of grosses of pots had attained the pitch of perfection, I was to paste on each printed label, and then go on again with more pots. Two or three other boys were kept at similar duty downstairs on similar wages. One of them came up in a ragged apron and a paper cap on the first Monday morning to show me the trick of using the string and tying the knot. His name was Bob Fagan, and I took the liberty of using his name long afterwards in Oliver Twist. No words can express the secret agony of my soul as I sunk into this companionship, compared these everyday associates with those of my happier childhood, and felt my hopes of growing up to be a learned and distinguished man crushed in my breast. The deep remembrance of the sense I had of being utterly rejected and hopeless, of the shame I felt in my position, of the misery it was to my young heart to believe that, day by day, what I had learned and thought and delighted in, and raised my fancy and my emulation up by, was passing away from me, never to be brought back any more, cannot be written. My whole nature was so penetrated with the grief and humiliation of such considerations that even now, famous and caressed and happy, I often forget in my dreams that I have a dear wife and children, even that I am a man and wander desolately back to that time in my life. Good damn. It's nice. Well, I mean, it's very nicely written. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's quite a miserable story. Yeah. And so this, this may have been Charles Dickens' you know, ultimate fate for his life, had it not been for his grandmother who uh, died. And uh, so it was John's mother. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> and so because she died... Uh, John Dickens inherited 450 pounds, which is about 33,000 pounds today, or about $44,000 upon the death of Elizabeth Dickens. That's a ton of money. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, like, good chunk back then, enough to get Dickens out. He was making, like, Dickens was working, like, basically all the time in horrible conditions. What, 100 pounds a month? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now his dad gets, like, 33,000? Yeah, I mean, at 450, so adjusted for inflation. So it's like, you know, like a half, half a year's wages right there, which got him out of... Uh, out of desert debtors. No, no, no. I was adjusting for inflation. That £100 a month is in modern day money because he was getting paid like £22 a week. So it's like £88. Oh, yeah. That's right. Adjusted for inflation. And then he gets 330 So that's like a thousand months. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So either way. Yeah, I adjusted. It's, it's insane. <laughs> that's true. What was, what was, oh, yeah, that's right. He was getting six shillings, right? That's that's what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Six uh, shillings okay. or like 20, 20, 22 pounds and now 33,000 pounds. Yeah. And so uh, she died and that and turned out to be the, you know, the turning point in Charles Dickens life, but not immediately because while his father and, you know, mother and everything. Also, what, what's, what's his, hang on, what's his mother up to? Why isn't she bailing him out of prison? She's obviously rich. Like that's definitely, I'm assuming, pretty pretty wealthy by 18, uh, 17, 17th century? 17th century. I always get confused when I would say centuries versus it's 19th century. It's not like super wealthy, but it's like definitely like she was, you know, she had money. She wasn't suffering, but not maybe, maybe not enough to... to... Maybe she was sick of paying <laughs> yeah. him out because he was a bit of a bit of an overspender. Yeah. But uh, whatever the case, 
Uh, so John Dickens gets out of debtor's prison and the family's out. But this, you know, Charles Dickens might have thought, oh, this is it. I can go back to school and everything. But no, no, his mother, yeah. his mother was like, no, you should keep working. And so, so Dickens later wrote of that. What? Yeah. He, he, Dickens had a nice little poignant comment about that one. It's literally for nothing compared to the amount of money they now have. Yeah. I mean, not literally, but it's, it's, t- anyway. I never afterwards forgot. I never shall forget. I never can forget that my mother was warm for me being sent back. Oh, yeah. brutal. He's not, he never let that one go. That was good for their relationship. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it did. Wow. Eventually though, uh, he did, he did, he was allowed to go quit and go back to school. I think it was like after a year. Yeah. It was, it was about another year. That he worked at the factory, just based in labels, six days a week, just sitting there. Hey, can you imagine? That would just be so awful. I, I mean, yeah, I can. I think, though, like, that's bad. But what's really bad is the stuff that he's not even, like... Yeah, the stuff we'll get you, to. You think, like, we're pasting bit. the labels on, but it's like... Yeah, but you get beat. And yeah. you get paid nothing. And I'm sure it's, like, it's dirty and you're breathing in smoke and fumes from those barges and you're not eating properly and he's probably got like the english disease (laughs) and all this stuff so yeah no i mean i can imagine sticking labels on jars i imagine that would be if it was just sticking labels on jars in like wherever it wouldn't be bad yeah at least he wasn't working in the coal mines or something right uh, yeah but yeah so and we will get into some more extreme cases later in this one but uh but yeah, so he, oh, he eventually got to go back to school, and then uh, shortly thereafter, he became a law clerk very briefly at the age of 15, and then later a theater actor for a little while, and fi- finally... <laughs> Some range. Yeah, uh, finally he settled as a... That, that theater actor one actually served him well, I think, later in life, because actually how he made a lot of his money because of the lack of copyright laws and stuff was in performing or reading his pieces, but he would, he would kind of... He wouldn't just read them. He would kind of act them out and stuff. And this, he would do tours, which because of a lack of copyright laws, like he was. Pre- yeah, so so he could other people. Yeah, stuff? so a lot of his books and stuff, he would publish them, and they would be wildly successful. But then, you know, most yeah. of them were just pirated copies. So he wasn't actually making money ah. off them. He would make money off like the first editions before everyone copied, and he would continue to make money after that. But it wasn't like he was just making a small piece of the pie, which is <laughs> kind of similar to like working on YouTube or you know running today. I found out uh, it's the same type of thing. <laughs> everyone copies it, and you know. Have you ever seen pirate books? Like, I went, I went traveling. Uh, I've been to Asia a few times, and I, I was backpacking around there maybe ten years ago. Doing like, it's quite a. I know a lot of people from Britain. I think do this kind of tour around Southeast Asia. There's a bunch. Everyone kind of visits the same four countries, mm-hmm. and they have like books that are you know appealing to backpackers. So there'll be like the Lonely Planet Guide to like Vietnam or whatever, and they're not real. But they look really good. They're like, people have made effort into copying these things. It's not just like they photocopied the book and stuck it all together. Yeah. It's like, it, it looks like a book. Like the cover's maybe a bit too faded, but it's still glossy. And then I always remember the biggest thing people complained about was that all the maps sucked because like the photocopying of the maps was really low quality. So you couldn't really use the maps, but everything else was okay. Yeah. And they had like pirate copies of, I remember, uh, I think this was around the time Dan Brown's books were quite popular. Mm-hmm you know, just kind of beach reading. Yeah. And so there were loads of copies of, uh, oh God, what's that book called? His main book with the, the code, the... Da Vinci uh, Code. Da Vinci Code, thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. so pirate books. Never realized that was a thing. Totally a thing. So people were pirating Charles Dickens's books, essentially. Yeah, and so, yeah, so this, you know, and 
when he would do these readings, uh, particularly like the American tours and stuff. And uh, yeah, he would just, uh, he had a couple of those and he'd just make a, like a boatload of money just going around reading and acting out the parts and stuff. And so I don't know, the, the stint as a theater actor might have helped him out there in making a lot of money. But after, sounds pretty good. Uh, yeah. After he did the theater actor thing for a little while, he became a political journalist and covering the House of Commons. And then on the side, all right, yeah, on the side, he would write these uh, some fiction pieces under the pseudonym originally Boz, which was apparently a, a nickname he had his family had given him, I guess. And uh-huh. so he started to gain a little traction on that on the, the stuff. And then of course he did a nice little, uh, I assume, especially later because he had a mistress and kind of just ignored his wife. Uh, that uh, the marriage was perhaps he married the daughter of of an editor, basically, uh, of his book editor. Uh, her name was Catherine. And this was around the same time he published uh, uh, Pickwick Papers in April of 1836. He actually got married that same month. Uh, so two years later, he publishes Oliver Twist. And that was kind of the the beginning of his, you know, superstardom, which he was actually um, one of the one of the first like true celebrities, as we would think of them, like that wasn't royalty or something like that. Like just sort of a you know normal person who became just wildly famous, um, yeah, and like earned celebrity. Yeah, exactly. And so he 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 actually even had a stalker. Is one of the early examples of someone that like a Ooh. celebrity that had a stalker. How exciting! Yeah. And uh, and he also he ha- he has a great quote on his uh, his first tour in America. So this I mean this sort of like the stuff people following around crowds and stuff was not something that was normal like it wasn't like today where if you had like a big celebrity that would be kind of a normal thing if they're walking through a crowd or whatever and people knew where they yeah. were but back then it was just sort of this unheard of thing and uh, and he he has tons of quotes like lamenting this he hated it uh, but so he has this one right here from he was actually staying on a boat in Cleveland and he just kind of woke up and uh, and yeah he said, if I turn into the street, I am followed by a multitude. I can't drink a glass of water without having a hundred people looking down my throat when I open my mouth to swallow. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds pretty, pretty invasive. Yeah, and he, he, he did uh, note as well that he, like, at one point he just woke up and, like, looks out his window and there's just, like, people standing there staring at him. You know, just like this wow. weird, kind of weird. Um, but, he, you yeah. know, it was lucrative. That I mean, those tours, he made a ton of money there, so... Uh, but yeah, and it was good because he was constantly, much like his father, in need of money because he was always living just right at the limits of his means. And so, uh, <laughs> wait, I, I know why this happens and stuff, yeah. because it's like, you know, you don't necessarily correct the errors of your parents. Yeah. In in many ways, we tend to just continue again, yeah. continue on like you like uh, for all sorts of things. But it's like, really, dude? Like you were in the poorhouse and you, you're only saved because your grandmother happened to die. It's like, I don't know. Yeah. Just seems like a bit of a mistake, yeah. really. It all works out for him in the end. Yeah, for, for him, I, I'd still be he, like, he, for him, he took the, uh, I think, as you put it there, uh, the Fresh Prince way of getting out of financial trouble. So, like, this was one of my favorite, like, things written in a script in a long time. Like, uh, we did a video about the Fresh Prince basically ending up in tons of debt to the. Yeah to the tax guys because he just didn't pay it when he was like yeah. uh, when he was starting out and he was well, and then it's like your financial pro tip at the end was when in ma- when massively in debt just make loads yeah, more money exactly that's exactly <laughs> and it totally worked yeah, out because i mean as a teenager will smith he was you know he made you know millions of dollars and it was just like he's a teenager you know what's he gonna do no one was telling him how to spend his money or do taxes he didn't know anything about that so he's just spending it you know left and right and then it was like oh wait 
Okay. And so that, you know, they took away all his, you know, his mansions, his cars, and he was basically massively in debt. And this, this was at the, the Fresh Prince basically was what bailed him out of all that, uh, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And so anyways, that's a, that's a story for another day, but. I love, I love that TV show as a kid. Yeah, totally. Really enjoyed that. Um, Um, So yeah, this is Charles Dickens had the same thing. It was like, you know what? I'll just spend lots of money and then I'll just, you know, always make more. And unlike his father, who was just a clerk, Dickens actually had the means to do this. Uh, but he was not he was not set up well to have anything go wrong. Like if if he published something and then it didn't do well, uh, he was really not in a good position to to, you know, not get in major debt because he was supporting at the time. He had his wife. Eventually he had 10 children with her. He had a mistress to support. Whoa. He had brothers, he had sisters and his parents. He was all supporting <laughs> among other people. But he was... Given that he was being followed around by a hundred yeah. people at a time, he's pretty ultra rich. Yeah, and this right? was probably why he didn't worry. He because like I could always, you know, go do performances and stuff. But he also he needed, you know, the books to to do well so that he could then go on tour and stuff like that. Uh, and so he he started doing in 1842. This was uh, I, I think it was around the same time as his like right after his first American tour or around the same time anyway. So he publishes Martin Chuzzlewit, and that was kind of a flop. It didn't really go well, and he was basically... I've never heard of that. Yeah, exactly. That's like the one Charles Dickens thing no one's ever heard of. And I've seen the cover for it, but I've never read it either, so it must not have been good. Um, have, you read, have you read much, Dickens? Oh, yeah, tons. You, you enjoy it? I enjoy quite a bit of it, not everything. I find it... I think... I don't know. I read some when I was younger... I find it incredibly wordy. Yeah, uh, like Oliver Twist is great though. Like that—that's I, I felt like that one is actually like a legitimate, not like something you know they forced you to read in school. That one's actually enjoyable from like start to finish. I feel like uh, some, okay. you know, some of the other. I think stuff, that might have been the one I've actually read. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure. Some of the other stuff is not quite as you know. It's a little bit more slow moving and stuff, but interesting. I think I I, I don't know. I like the way they wrote back then, particularly uh, just the style. I really like. So this, this, he publishes Martin Chuzzlewit, and he's basically, it doesn't really do what he thought it would, and he's teetering on the edge of financial ruin, uh, kind of taking it. What? Yeah, I know, right? Just, and you okay, have to look, he, because this I, this was around the time of the America, that first American tour, which he made a boatload of money on. Like, how did he spend it all between that and, like, one year later to this? this look, <laughs> he just needs to look to Nicolas Cage, for example, <laughs> of how to spend so much yeah. like an actually absurd amount of and money. And another great example of someone who's like, you know, the best financial plan is just to make more money, you know? That's true. Yeah. Although he does some terrible movies. Yeah, but you but know, it's worth for for like for a man who is a good actor and has won an Academy Award for Best Actor, people forget this. He does some real bad like B movies. Yeah. But mm-hmm. you know. He gets to have a dinosaur skull or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And a car that somehow got put in his house with no one knows how it got in there because there's, you know, literally just regular doors and stuff. There's no, did they build the car in there? Did they remove a wall and put it in there? You know? Well, look, the bigger question is, how can you have a Gatsby style party <laughs> without having your car inside? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's the question Cage asked himself. Anyway. Uh, okay. So he somehow manages to spend all of this money. Um, and is on the verge of financial ruin. Yes, and um, so it's at this time that one of Charles Dickens' friends, a Richard Henry Horn, he publishes something uh, which actually one of the sort of considered the sort of a hallmark report in in um, British history, basically the industrial history, I should say, uh-huh. 
of that era was called the Report of the Children's Employment Commission. And it just basically goes through and just details the, just how awful it was for the for poor children, basically, uh, working there. They're just everything. Their working conditions were awful. Their hours were awful. Like, they just nonstop. They, they had time to sleep and then they go back to work. <laughs> Uh, basically, it was yeah. super dangerous. They were dying left and right of, you know, various things. And sometimes just like generally just complacency, like the people were it was like, ah, whatever, they're disposable. You know, that one died, but we'll just replace them with another one. And so it was just like complete apathy towards any safety or anything like that. And so this this sort of report actually did it in the best way possible. It was the firsthand testimonials from these kids. And so it's like, um, so as an example, there's uh, Isaac Tipton. And so he started working at the coal mines when he's seven, as you do. And get this, seven years old, working in the coal mines, 12 hours a day, six days a week. And while working there, regularly beaten because, and this is, this is a little nice little quote from Isaac Tipton himself. He says, oh man, why was I beaten? <laughs> he says, I deserved it. Yeah. Wow. That is, that is like some degree of psychological abuse as well right there yeah well i mean seven when you start you can see that's just you know his life i guess yeah. and uh but worse than that they had children you know tons of reports of children being killed or mangled or whatever and just yeah like for instance if if a big industrial machinery would get jammed you know naturally you got a little kid who's going to crawl in there and you know get their hands in or whatever i mean if they can physically crawl in mm -hmm. to remove the jam or just put their arm in because they're small they can do that where an adult couldn't but the thing is, quite often, no one would bother turning off the machinery. So once the jam was removed, this would be like, oh, your arms get slopped off. Or, or if you're in it, oh, you're dead. You know, and that was just, you know, thing that happens sometimes. I think, I think, yeah, it, I, just like disposable commodities, like you say. It's, uh, yeah, exactly. It's pretty and, grim, dude. Yeah. And as Dickens said, like, no one seemed to care at no. all. It was just like, ah, it's poor kids. <laughs> And we'll get into a little bit of why no one seemed to care. There was actually reasons, and this also gets brought up in A Christmas Carol, uh, but with references that I think a lot of people don't uh, get the reference that, that uh, Dickens was going for there. But people, people at the time when he was writing it would have definitely understood what he was, what he was talking about. So yeah, there was also, uh, so the, that Isaac uh, Tipton, he had it easy because there was also like stories of young girls who were working at garment factories, 16 hours per day. They would just sew six days a week. So that's, you know, 16 hours a day and then, you know, eight hours to sleep or whatever. And then, right. Wait, was Tipton in the mines? Yeah, Tipton was in the coal mines. These girls were, you know, garment factories sewing and, you know, bleeding fingers and all that. And it was just, that was the... What would you choose though? Coal mines for 12 hours a day or sewing for 16? I got to go with the sewing because while your fingers might... I'd go with the sewing too because you say like, it's, you, you kind of said like, oh, he had it okay. But I'm like, dude... I, I don't know. This you got to do a lot to before I go choose the coal mine. Yeah, because you're you know at least that one the sewing. You I mean you're not getting your lungs filled with coal dust or you know that sort of yeah. stuff. And yeah, and, and what what this report actually looked at really was that while this this seems like oh these must be the exceptions and it turns out with the report we came out it was just like no these weren't the exceptions. This is just kind of how poor children it was just life for them at this point. Uh, and it was quite common, actually, across the industrialized Britain. And so the the report also uh, significantly here when, when talking about these different kids was also just that the idea here was that people thought, people who weren't poor, thought that everyone who was poor was that way because they were immoral. So it was just like punishment from God or whatever, oh. or they were lazy, you know, drunks or maybe, uh, you know, lacking in some intelligence or just maybe they were just deformed, which is probably also for, you know, reasons they were probably born that way because, you know, 
they did their parents did something wrong or you know whatever this was just the general kind of idea it was just like yeah they're poor it's funny how today would be like you're rich because you're immoral rather than (laughs) like you're poor because you're immoral yeah so quite the flip yeah and so this also is why there, there was government aid for poor people at the time but it was always very intentionally harsh because if you if you made it nice it would just be you know, yeah it was like well people would just want to be poor they would want to stay poor instead of doing something to get out of it and so clearly if you were poor you you just were too lazy or whatever you know there's all these reasons and this was just kind of the the common thing and so that we had like the 1834 poor law amendment act uh, which actually stopped uh, government aid to the poor unless they went to a workhouse and so this this was uh, meant as sort of a discouragement from being poor you had to go to a workhouse and so uh, as uh, so uh, Richard Osler, who's um, nicknamed the Factory King back then, he he noted it was just the these workhouses were basically prisons for the poor, in his opinion. And so at the workhouses, mm-hmm. so what was life like there? So they would just the split families got split up, and and you know everyone worked, kids worked, you know everyone in the family would work these you know usually really awful jobs and really grueling. And because they wanted to make the workhouses really awful to live at, so that people yeah. wouldn't want to go there, and so you'd work harder to get out of there, even though you know you could often work really hard and not get out of there. Uh, so that you usually weren't given a lot of food when you went there. And even if you were given food, it was often just like rotting food sometimes. Like this is again, something that got, you know, shown in the report. People were literally starving at the workhouses and also the workhouse masters, you know, you don't want to be nice to the people who are there because, you know, if you're nice to them, they might want to stay there was the idea. And so they would very abusive, very intentionally cruel and abusive to the people at the workhouses. Um, and just the whole idea was just, to you know, you know, you're only poor because you're lazy or drunk or, you know, whatever, immoral, whatever. And so this was just, you know, you didn't want to make it nice for them. And this was the kind of the general sentiment at the time. It's interesting that the whole thing kind of is broken just from that one false assumption at the beginning about you're poor because you're immoral. Yeah. Yeah. And so, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So this was kind of the. And then at least this whole screwed up thing. Yeah. So, so he, Dickens actually kind of alludes to this where, you know, in the Christmas Carol, he has that one. A charitable solicitor who's not given a name, but he said, you know, people would rather die than go to a workhouse. And then, of course, yeah. Scrooge gives his very famous remark. If they would rather die, they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. Yes, yeah. Scrooge. And so you might think from this, clearly he was saying Scrooge was a villain and everyone would think he was a villain because that's what we would sure. think today when we hear a comment like that from someone. But it turns out, at the time, this would not have necessarily been thought a villain because this is a reference, actually. Uh, Dickens is making a reference to a popular idea in a a popular paper. At the time, it was written by one Reverend Thomas Robert Malthus in 1798, and it was an essay on the principles of population. And this this was extremely popular and was sort of uh, some of the idea of what Scrooge is is saying here in there. So, uh, So Robert Malthus writes... He says, the power of population is so superior to the power of the earth to produce subsistence for man that premature death must in some shape or other visit the human race. The vices of mankind are active and able ministers of depopulation. And then he goes on later. He says, the further uh, that the superior power of population is repressed by moral restraint, vice and misery, yet in all societies, even those that are most vicious, the tendency to a virtuous attachment is so strong that there is a constant effort towards an increase of population. This constant effort as constantly tends to subject the lower classes of the society to distress and to prevent any great permanent amelioration of their condition. So the general idea here was that, and it's not actually, if you really look at what he's saying, it's not completely untrue. It's uh, if you have over... There's, there's bits in there that are kind of wrong. 
but yeah. the concept is not yeah. incorrect. Exactly. So you have overpopulation. So that's, uh, in his opinion, would lead to lower wages because you'd have a surplus of workers. And so you wouldn't need then, so business owners and stuff would just, okay, we have a surplus of workers, everyone needs jobs, so we don't need to make nice work conditions and, you know, we can pay people less and they'll still come work for us. And so, you know, that's just going to make the poor even more poor. And with overpopulation, there's going to be scarcity of food and then uh, it's going to get more expensive than the food. So the poor aren't going to be able to afford the food. And the result is just going to be famine and disease all over the place. So the overall for society, then the population will decrease because, you know, people are dying off. Which makes sense, but from a modern perspective, we know that there's like way more at play here. Yeah, and yeah, and resources, you know, we have ways to get a lot more resources than, you know, back then with a lot of machinery and stuff. But um, And also the fact that he's looking at humans as not as a resource, but really humans are a resource. And you look at countries where there's high population, those countries typically do well over the longer term, like the growth of China or, yeah. you know, India soon. It's... Yeah, it's generally a benefit. And so like it kind of sucks for a while, but it's generally good. Well, yeah, and that's what he's also saying here. The uh, so on the flip side of that, as famine and disease comes, what's going to happen? Lots of people die off. Population decrease. You're actually going to have an increase in food supplies, less workers to work. Wages are going to go up. And this we actually, you know, we saw you see in history with the like the Black Death and stuff when this was like a major turning point in history where, you know, people started for a time getting really good wages and stuff because there was just this massive die off of people. So now there was a surplus. So it's this is, you know, exactly what he's describing. And it's not, you know, completely wrong. But the problem was, is how people... But the, it's better just to grow an economy. Like, yeah. we, we definitely have better wages and everything now than we did after the Black Death. And that's not because, you know, we had some sort of die-off of population. It's just because we've all become more prosperous. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, the, exactly. So the problem was here that the people, the people interpreted this. They were like, hey, so if we help poor people you know, that's just going to hurt society. So we shouldn't help poor people. So this was kind of a very popular idea at the time. And it should be noted here that Malthus himself, he he did not like that people interpreted it this way. His whole point of this paper was to actually help society by saying, hey, let's look at the future. How can we, you know, we should do population control and we should do, you know, start uh, planning ahead for resources when we, when we do, we see that, you know, things are going to change. And so he was saying like exactly what you say, let's fix the economy part uh, let's let's prepare for when the population grows so that things can stay. This was kind of the point of his paper to to look at what's the actual problem. Now, what can we do about it? He didn't like that people interpreted it as, hey, let's stop helping the poor people so they all die off. Like this, this was actually quite <laughs> disturbing to him. Uh, so that was not yeah. that was not what he was going for. But that's how that's what people you know came up with with his paper. Um, so this this you can see how yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so this this ended up being the the impetus for Scrooge's remark there that you know they should die and decrease decrease the surplus population. That's what Dickens was referencing. He knew like his the people reading it would understand the reference uh, to that. And so this this of course gives his and Dickens gives his opinion on this with the the ghost of Christmas present states. Man, if man you be in heart, forbear that wicked can't until you have discovered what the surplus is and where it is. Will you decide what men shall live, what men shall die? It may be that in the sight of heaven you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child. O oh God, to hear the insect on the leaf pronouncing there is too much life among his hungry brothers is that in the dust. Yeah, so as you can see, I mean, that's a pretty strong little statement against the Malthuses and the people, people who were kind of clinging to this idea. 
Uh, and so Dickens, when he when he read that first report, and then there was also a second report published in 1843, he was quite uh, enraged by all this. Uh, kind of, you know, a little bit more stinging to him probably because you know of his youth. Sure. I mean, he wasn't working in the coal mines 16 hours a day, but still, you know, he almost not a great time. It almost kind of that sort of like menial job of just doing something and being poor for the rest of his life was almost his fate, if not been for his uh, dead grandmother. Um, so. He, he he says, so he writes shortly after the second report, he decided he was going to do something about it. He's famous. He's a famous writer. He can do something about this. So he taught, he writes to a friend of his, Dr. Southwood Smith, and he says he's going to deliver, to quote him, a sledgehammer blow on behalf of the poor man's child. And so this, his original idea was just to actually make a, a philosophical plant, uh, pamphlet, sort of like an essay, sort of similar to Malthus's, on, but on this subject and, you know, why basically this idea was wrong. But then, you know, he was kind of in need of money at the time. And so he thought, instead of a pamphlet, I should write a book. And so, um, yeah, he decides to do this. And so he writes a letter to, to Dr. Smith again, a second letter to sort of uh, illustrating he, he changed his mind. And he says, Rest assured that when you know it and see what I do and where and how, you will certainly feel that a sledgehammer has come down with 20,000 times the force I could exert by following out my first idea. Even so recently as when I wrote to you the other day, I had not contemplated the means I shall now, please God, use. But they have been suggested to me, and I have girded myself for their seizure, as you shall see in due time. He's clearly quite excited about this. Yeah. And so in October of 1843, he starts writing A Christmas Carol and he finishes it in six mm. weeks because he needed money and he also wanted to make it a Christmas story <laughs> and he wanted it to publish before Christmas so he could, you know, make a lot of money on that. Quite a lucrative time. <laughs> Classic Dickens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this, it, it should be noted here that Christmas at this time was a bit of, it wasn't like we think of it today as like this major, like probably the biggest holiday of the year. Uh, it was kind of a second-rate holiday oh, yeah. in Britain at the time, so it was something that was celebrated, huh. but it was only sort of, it was around this time that it really started to become popular, sort of the early 19th century was kind of had, went on the upswing and then sort of continued on the upswing for quite some time until we have today, but so he was, it was it was starting to become popular in Dickens, he, you know, he wanted to capitalize that for a, a, a boost in sales, but also there was a, there even though it wasn't like, celebrated like we think today there was still that charity element that is still around where christmas is a time for charity it wasn't quite as strong as it is today but actually dickens this a christmas carol was one of the reasons it got sort of solidified as a thing i feel like the it would be appropriate to say shocker yeah given the, yeah. given everything we've discussed in this episode so far charity less of a thing yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. So yeah, this idea of, of, of charity and Christmas, he wanted to sort of capitalize yeah. on that notion as well. And so he he kind of writes this uh, in A Christmas Carol, uh, sort of uttered by Fred, Scrooge's gold-hearted nephew. But I am sure I have always thought of Christmas time when it has come round. Apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be apart from that, as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time, the only time I know of in the long calendar of the year where men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. Okay, you know I was saying about Charles Dickens using lots of words? Uh -huh. Like, this, the end of that is pretty amazing and I see you've, you've italicized it in the text because it's pretty awesome. Yeah. But it is a long way to say that. It's it's no, it's great. It's quite, I love the way they wrote back word. then. It's amazing. 
I, I don't know. I just like uh, reading. I, I like it. That's one of the reasons. I, I like it being a little more concise. That's one of the reasons. I like stories. Count, it, Count of Monte Cristo is one of my favorite because it also it is an amazing story. But also the writing is just like awesome through through the whole thing. Just like stuff like that. That's all. It's like stuff that you would bold and just like, I'm going to write that down and put it on a poster. Like constantly. I'm reading this now. It's very, it's, it's very hard. Maybe it's because I have the reading level of like a 14 year old. <laughs> but it's like, it's. It's not easy to get it, to get through. Uh, speaking of that, though, have you seen? So I I love the story A Christmas Carol, but I never found like a you know a movie version or whatever that I liked particularly. Until have you seen TNT? This like random cable network. I don't know if they have it in Britain or whatever, but in the US, they made a version with Patrick Stewart, and that is an amazing. No. Yeah, Patrick Stewart what? as Scrooge. It is amazing. It's no. really good. It's low budget, clearly, but it's also amazing. It almost follows the like the story version uh like the book almost verbatim the whole thing like the what the way to talk and the the whole thing they don't really cut anything out um and yeah it is great as you might imagine being patrick stewart um in it wait th- but this i'm looking it up right now this is a 90 this is like mid next oh no post next gen so patrick stewart's a star yeah and they got him and it is amazing it's really good everyone should go watch it wow i love patrick stewart yeah it's good it's good you should probably you- did we just Sponsored, sponsored by Amazon. <laughs> I bet it's on Amazon. Yeah, I can't get Amazon, uh, Amazon Prime TV stuff. I oh, signed yeah? up for Prime because not even with ton- not even with like Tunnel Bear or something. Uh, oh, maybe they're pretty good at catching this stuff these days. Uh, that's too bad. <laughs> uh, but yeah, because I, I I think as I'd like. I don't know when I signed up for Amazon. I, I've never changed it from like a .co.uk account. Germany's closer, mm-hmm. but so I still get all their marketing. It's like, hey, sign up for Prime for this new TV show. I'm like, that's amazing. And maybe I'll get cheaper delivery as well. So I sign up for Prime and then it's like, oh no, delivery is the same as before. You can't access Prime TV because you're not in the UK and you can't access music either. So I was like, so what do I get? Turns out absolutely nothing. <laughs> so I canceled that fairly quickly. Well, if I didn't have such slow, crappy internet, you could always just access my Plex where you can see my whole movie library and, you know, watch. Ah, that's awesome. Yeah, I have that on there. <laughs> it's really good. Anyway, anyways, everyone should go watch The Christmas Carol with Patrick Stewart. It's awesome as you, mm-hmm. you know, everything he does is awesome. So, everything. Yeah. And I don't want to go too far down the Patrick Stewart hole, but we did talk about the new Star Trek with Patrick Stewart in it being confirmed, right? Yes, we did. And I did. did is the date <sighs> confirmed? Like, when is it coming out? Like, next year, maybe? Or I haven't Googled presumably? this in far too long. Um... Uh, CBS All Access. Uh, no, all the news is from September. So it's the one we previously knew. Yeah. The people biggest ask is, you know, on Google when you search, it's like people also ask, the, is Captain Picard coming back? Yeah. The answer is yes. It's got to be soon yes, though. He He's really old. So like, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to wait around. So it's got to be, I bet you it's like next year or something. Oh, I've got someone to add to my list of people who are, you'll be surprised they're still alive. You ready for it? <laughs> yeah. Like this, this is epitomized by Henry Kissinger. Still alive. <laughs> totally still alive. That's amazing. Um, Chuck Yeager. Really? Chuck Yeager is still alive. The man who was first to break the sound barrier. That's, that is also amazing. I'm always surprised yep. a lot of the astronauts are still alive as well. A lot of those, you know, early astronauts. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, it's like not that long ago. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a long time ago, and also they're like they were physical specimens, so it's not exactly surprising they're like living to like ninety five, yeah, yeah, um, or like dying young, you know, horrible space accidents. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Patrick Stewart is seventy eight years old. I know. 
And so they got to get, they're going to get cracking on this because if they're going to go like five to seven seasons or something, you know, that's pushing it. Yeah, that's true. Although I want, um, I want more than a couple seasons here. So they should just record. William, William Shanner's 87. They should go like, just do like a, like Lord of the Rings style where they just record the entire thing at once. Like, you know, like seven seasons worth in a year or something. And just, you know, (laughs) then we're set. I'm into it. They should just release them all immediately. Yeah. Um, so going, sorry. Okay. That, that we're out of the Patrick Stewart hole. We must carry on. Yeah. So December 19th, 1843, Charles Dickens publishes a Christmas Carol just under the wire for Christmas. Uh, they probably, they get one of the problems, the delay here. I mean, it might've been out a little sooner is they kind of threw away the, the first, uh, first sort of plainly bound copies. Cause Dickens was like, no, they can't be plainly bound. He wanted them super, super high end. He wanted like gold gilding. He wanted like colored drawings, hand etchings, some woodcut images on there, everything he just wanted to be completely top-notch. And this actually ironically put it out of the reach of any poor person. Like there was no way, you know, you could afford this unless you were wealthy, uh, which he got criticized for at the time because it's kind of ironic. But while it was, the book was technically like for the poor, but it wasn't for them to read. This was his target audience was was rich people. Uh, basically, he wanted the rich people to read this and be like, yeah, read this. You're all horrible people. Improve right, because the poor conditions. people would be like, just <laughs> yeah, true story, right? <laughs> true story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so they, they 6,000 copies ended up going out, sold out by Christmas. So within a week, he sold out. But um, And he actually did 13 uh, editions after that, official editions that were published by his publisher wow. and everything that, was, that were sold within the next year. So beyond Christmas, it continued to sell. Uh, but because of the expense, how expensive this was to produce, it was way more expensive than he thought. And so he didn't actually make nearly as much he made about a quarter of what he thought on the initial run which is only about 230 pounds is what he made which was about twenty thousand dollars but for a man of his expense expenses this was not a considerable sum (laughs) yeah so he's got his 10 children and the rest of his extended family to feed and so this you know but the 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 good thing is despite all the counterfeit copies and how well it was selling all over because of that the, the tours he would do and he would act out this whole thing. You know, he would you know play the different roles on the stage and everything, read the whole thing. He made a boatload of money on that over the rest of his life. He, you know, it was an annual nice. you know, holiday thing that he could just continue to cash in on. And he was happy to do that. Uh, so, dude, I think I've got to get into books like these things sell forever. Yeah. Like YouTube sticks around and podcasts are all good. But books, man, Yeah, well, people and you get like copy protection for like a hundred years after your death or whatever yeah this is like even like the wise book of wise that we we did like the it makes the same amount every single month and it's not a considerable amount but it's like every single month i can just count on there there it is there's that little deposit from amazon uh and just forever this is what is this like five years later or something like that and it's just consistent i don't even know it's amazing i haven't recorded any audiobooks which is what i used to do in years i still make like a few hundred bucks a month yeah from like this and it's like cool it pays for like i don't know like chunk of my mortgage yeah like it's pretty great and i don't do anything and i was looking at that like today i found out we've published like five thousand articles right and that's yeah. and i was looking at like the number of words and then the number of words in the wise book of wise and i was like i gotta like at least at least even like trimming out the crap you know the not as good content just sticking with the really good stuff at least like 50 to 100 books there and if you multiply that by like what the wise book of wise makes that's a lot of money. 
And we can turn these into audiobooks like super easily. Yeah. Then we've got the appeal of like, we've already got a platform to like yeah. sell them from. Yeah. <laughs> we do such this a good job of into, like, we should do books. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's definitely on the list to do after, you know, doing everything else we have on the list to do at some point. But, um, our endless to do list. Yeah. So, so it did well. This did not, the book, one of the, the goals of Dickens was going for was to solve his financial difficulties. This sort of only helped, it didn't really solve them. Uh, initially, mm-hmm. but it did have the intended effect on the general public. So, like as the Gentleman's Magazine said in the spring of 1844. So, directly after the, um, they noted directly after the the book was published, there was a, a stark rise in charitable giving um, over the next several mm-hmm. months, uh, right after the publishing of the book. And then uh, British author G. K. Chesterton also rings in on the the story and its effect. He said. The beauty and the real blessing of the story do not lie in the mechanical plot of it, the repentance of Scrooge, probable or improbable. They lie in the great furnace of real happiness that glows through Scrooge and everything around him. Whether the Christmas visions would or would not convert Scrooge, they convert us. That's nice. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. yeah. There you go. All right. Yeah. So. Wow, that's a great way to end the main section, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Wrapped up with a bow for Christmas. <laughs> of a great author. The great authors, they, they tend to, you know, have a way of wording things. Um, well, this was... Oh, yeah, sorry. He is also a noted yeah, very, author himself. Sorry, I thought it was just someone writing for Gentleman's Magazine. No, <laughs> no. no this, is, this was a quite famous... I've heard of this guy, actually. Yeah. I don't think I've ever read anything of his. I don't, not really. Oh, no, I've certainly never read anything <laughs> by him, but I've heard his name. Here, wait. <laughs> Apparently, I've barely read anything. <laughs> I have to say, my, my childhood was mostly made up of, like, uh, John Grisham books, which I absolutely love, but it's not exactly literary genius. Yeah, no. Um, no. God, I love John Grisham. I still love John Grisham. I don't know why. Every book's so similar, but it's so good. Uh, I think I'm just a little dim. Anyway. Uh, I'm looking up. Bonus facts. What are we talking wait, about? Wait, wait. I'm looking up uh, this Chesterton. Oh, Okay. My internet's working again this week. I think if you listen to the previous episode, you'll find all of my sites kind of went to like just guesswork because for some reason it said I what my internet browser said I wasn't online despite the fact I was having a conversation with you on the internet. Yes, I have never. It was fun. I have never heard of anything G.K. Chesterton did, but apparently quite famous. What's his most notable novel? Do you have it? There? Uh, so his notable works include the Napoleon of Notting Hill. Uh, Charles Dickens, A Critical Study, The Man Who Was Thursday, Orthodox, Faith, Brown Stories, Everlasting Man. Um, yeah, and those were that. Apparently quite good journalist, orator, lay theogen. Is that, that's like a thing? How can you be a lay theogen? Well, you're just like, a, guess, you're not like, a, you're not educated kind of like enough. armchair interested <laughs> theology. Yeah. I've never heard that one before. Uh, if you go to the wiki. You could be a lay anything. I'm a, I'm a lay astronaut. Yeah. I'll have you know. <laughs> I've kind of got an armchair interest in it. Apparently, there's a lot of people. If you go to the Wikipedia Wikipedia page on uh, lay theologian, so that's G.K. Chesterton. Yeah. All right, back to the. I've never heard of anything he's written. His name is vaguely familiar. That's all. But I mean, there could be tons. Chesterton's not exactly rare. Judging by the length of his Wikipedia page, he's very famous. <laughs> okay. Although, didn't we do uh, a video about something, and then there was like. Uh, a band who weren't very notable who had a Wikipedia page longer than the Beatles. Really? But, oh, maybe this wasn't a Today I Found Out. Maybe this was a top... This might have been a top 10 about people abusing Wikipedia. It does sound like something Carl would do as well. 
does, doesn't yeah. it? It's something about a medicine show. It, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Carry on. Bonus facts. Bonus facts. So, the name Scrooge. It's, uh, it turns out, it seems like uh, Dickens himself made this name up. Uh, it doesn't appear to have ever been around before, uh, this story. Oh, so it didn't mean what it means today. It was the, This was the origin. Yeah, it seems like it anyway. That huh. There's not really any references. And it's thought to be from the English word... I, don't, I mean, what do you think? Is that pronounced Scrooge? Is that one of those, like, the U doesn't do anything in, in British English? I'd say, like, Scrooge. See, that's what I would say, I but then you have, you know, the British English has a lot of words that have the U that you just kind of ignore. So, what do you, what do you think? Uh, I just looked it up in my special pronunciation dictionary, and it says, sorry, no results found. And it suggests Scrooge. <laughs> yeah. So this... Like, uh, the name. Yeah. This is this is not where it came from because that it's not really a word anyone uses anymore, obviously, just by your search there reveals. Uh, but it used to mean uh, to squeeze or press. And so the support for the notion that this is where Dickens or this is how Dickens came up with the name. Uh, so at the very opening of the story at Christmas Carol, you'll see the description of the character Scrooge and where it right where he says. Was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Yeah, it's dramatic. So it kind of fits with that to squeeze or press definition. And so Ebene- yeah. Ebenezer is another reference that a lot of people probably miss. I mean, I, I suppose if you're a, you know, a Christian person, you might uh, at least have heard of this this before. So this uh, his his readership at the time would have definitely known the reference here of what Ebenezer was was implying here. And so this it's derived from the Hebrew for stone and helper, and thus the Ebenezer is the stone of help, and this is mentioned in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they have the, um, it's sort of a symbol of remembrance where the, the Israelites used, you know, so you, yeah, like, uh, come thou fount of many blessings has that line where it's like, here I raise my Ebenezer. And this is kind of referencing this as well, a uh, sort of, uh, sort of stone of remembrance for the defeat of the Philistines. Oh, here's another book I've never read. The Bible. <laughs> uh, so you've never, <laughs> it seems like, <laughs> no. To be fair, I, I did go to like uh, a Christian school, so I have read. And, and one of my first things of reading was uh, like when I first realized I like reading stuff or presenting was when I like I would be the person who reads the uh, the the I can't even remember what they're called where you have like a passage. Is it a passage from the Bible? Uh-huh. Yeah. So like the, we'd have like chapel service or church service twice a week. Uh-huh. And I'd be the person who often would stand up at the front and read Naturally. The, the passage <laughs> from the Bible. Yeah. Starting your career early. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Your presenter career. Damn right. Yeah. I'd always volunteer to read in class. I loved it. So so we've established that you haven't seen Star Wars and like many other classic movies. Oh, I, I've, I've been making a list of these things and I've been posting them on Twitter. So if you want to follow me on Twitter for all things that probably everyone thinks I should or will have seen, like never really read the Bible, adding that one as well. I don't like football like so the these, British sport of football. These cultural behemoths. Everyone loves this. All these cu- cultural yeah. behemoths across all mediums. <laughs> Simon is... I watched Game of Thrones. Oh, well, Didn't like it. <laughs> didn't like it. I saw one episode. I saw two episodes because I was like, everyone loved this. I must get into it. Uh, I've seen one Lord of the Rings, the first one. It was really boring. Now you're really killing um, me. Yeah, dude, I know. I know. And I kill most people. This is, I think, why we get negative reviews sometimes. <laughs> The Lord of the Rings, that the not the Hobbit one, but the original like little trilogy there. The ex- of course I've never seen the Hobbit one. Please, <laughs> I mean those are okay, but like comparative to the first three, not even in the same realm. And if you watch the extended versions that add like make them instead of like three hours, they're like four hours long or whatever. Those are even yeah. better. 
Um, they add a lot more no. story and stuff into them. It's so good. The soundtrack's amazing. The, first... the acting's amazing. The story, the way it's shot, everything about them is amazing. That's, I, I, I have listened to the soundtracks of many movies I've not seen because I think soundtracks are generally pretty amazing in movies those, like this. Those ones, Lord of the Rings, um, just listen to all of them. Even the Hobbit one, great, great soundtracks. You can just... Was it you who told me about Tron? Oh yeah, Tron Legacy. Seen, that is a... That is an epic. I know. I don't. Uh, that's actually album. not a style of music I usually like, but that one is just amazing. Yeah, me, me neither. You just, I, I, the only reason I even came across it was yeah, now it was you who told me about it. And I'm like, this is super good. Yeah. Um, no, Lord of the Rings, the first one I saw, the, uh, Fe- the Fellowship of the Rings. Uh, this, yeah, I, I really felt like, I must have been, I think I saw it when I was a teenager, whenever it first came out. It was in the movies. And I was like, they just went for a really long walk in the woods. <laughs> it was kind of just a real long walk in the woods. That is an app, some horses come. app description and you're thinking the whole time, why didn't they just, why didn't Gandalf just do the little thing where he calls the, the eagle to come save him? So like a brilliant idea here, these powerful eagles. Let's just, let's just skip walking and let's just fly. It would have, it, it would have made it a lot shorter <laughs> and therefore in my opinion, better <laughs> that was always like tolkien's i mean that's the joke of tolkien is always like i don't know how to get the characters out of this eagles the eagles will come what's the what's the word for that that i always never i don't know how to pronounce but it's spelled like uh is it do do a machina mm. uh, like in latin it means like an angel from the heavens yeah and it's sort of when s machina oh my god yeah. it woke up yeah yeah thank you um you wake up and it was he wakes up and it was all a dream it's like ultimate cop out yeah <laughs> So we should get back to the... We should, Sorry, we got we got off track, should, but I really felt it was important to point some of this stuff out and make people hate me slightly more. Um, I'm not sure what I what I have read and seen that I must have filled like the time with while not watch, watching all of what, these other things what, and reading all of these books. What did you do as, as a youth? I was incredibly into science fiction. So I've basically seen every Stargate. I've except seen for Star, every Star Except Trek. for the most famous of all. Star, Wait, what? Star Wars. I said Stargate, Stargate, no, I, SG One, Atlantis, Universe. You, you said I, you said uh, huge into into science fiction, and I was like, Star Wars is not science fiction. I don't want to go through this again. It's fantasy. It's fantasy. <laughs> God damn! All right, Ebenezer, you, Ebenezer, <laughs> it's not science fiction. <laughs> Ebenezer, okay. I'm gonna get so much hate. <laughs> the stone. There was a stone. It was named yeah, Ebenezer. Jesus, okay, yeah. Uh, to commemorate the what's, defeat what's the, of the Philistines. Stupid. Yeah. Uh, with the help of divine aid. So, so this. And I believe that's Philistines, by the way. <laughs> Isn't it not Philistines? I'm going to go with Philistines. Because when you call someone a Philistine as like an insult, it might just be a difference in pronunciation between that, or I might just not know how to pronounce between Britain and America, or I might just not know. Sorry, how to I'm just it. I'm just feeling now combative with you. So. <laughs> So in this case, it's thought that the first name here, uh, so you have Ebenezer Scrooge. So Scrooge was functioning as sort of the stone of remembrance for everyone to, you know, keep the spirit of charity. And this was something that, you know, the readers would have picked up on. They would have understood the reference and they probably would have understood the first name reference too, because that was actually a word that people used back then. So next up, the next bonus fact. So another word that's not really used, uh, but you pretty much only hear it in the in this novel is humbug. And so I just thought it was like, what's a humbug? I was kind of wondering. You know, he's like, bah humbug. What is that? Is, is a humbug a sweet as well? Or is that just something named super similarly? That's, Do you have humbug sweets? That sounds vaguely familiar, but I don't actually know. Google. I'm Googling it right now. Oh yeah, it's totally exactly what I imagined. 
It's like a, it's it's a sweet. It's just a, a wrapped candy. Is it you? Do you call candy sweets? Is that is that that's? I think that people would isn't people would one we share, right? No, but people would know what you were saying. It would not cause any confusion at all. Cool. Um, good. Good to know. Yeah. Unlike the uh, the the genre that is Star Wars, that causes a lot of confusion. <laughs> yeah. Still thinking about that. So what? <laughs> Humbugs. What's a humbug? It turns out that is just a word. It used to be a common word. It just means a sort of imposter or fraud. So something that's a humbug is just a fraud. And so this is what Scrooge was saying when he's like, "Christmas is a humbug." He was just calling the whole ho- the whole idea of the holiday a fraud. Okay, that's good. So while we're on the Sorry. while we're on the topic of of words and phrases, so there's a phrase that he uses in there, and it's often attributed to a Christmas carol as being the origin, but it is not actually. It goes back long before that. Uh, also, I think some people attribute it to Shakespeare, but not Shakespeare either. Uh, so, dead as a doornail is the phrase. And so Ooh. he says, and so he actually has a whole passage on this, on, on dead as a doornail and why, why is that a phrase? He says, old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Mind, I don't mean to say that I know of my own knowledge what there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade. But the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and my unhallowed hands shall not disturb it, or the country's done for you. You will therefore permit me to repeat emphatically that Marley was as dead as a doornail. So, he brings up there, okay. why why is it why why is it dead as a doornail as he asks there? Good question. And it yeah. turns out, I mean, with any etymology, especially going back so far as this phrase goes, there's always a certain level of speculation and uh, for that one commenter last time, it's not a lack of research, just nobody knows for sure. But <laughs> I still still <laughs> sour. But so there is a there is a, a sort of um with this one, there is a pretty good idea of how it probably came about this one, even though it is something that goes back to about the 14th century at least. Uh, so so when you, back then, before screws and stuff, they would use nails, obviously, to make doors. They would pound it through. And so the, what you would basically do mm-hmm. is just pound the nail through. It would come out the other side, and then you would hammer it over, you know, just bend it over. So this is called clenching. It basically, you know, cinches the boards together and then makes it more secure so the nail can't just pop out because it's bent over and, you know, hammered into the wood. Um, so... This this was life was tough before screws. Yeah, and so so this was just kind of what they would do. And this was when you not just indoors, but when you would bend a nail over like that. So it was basically kind of ruin the nail. It's really hard to get out. It would be called a dead nail. And so uh, and so you couldn't. Yeah, huh. I mean you could always bend it out and pop it out and everything. But then it's just you know it's a difficult process. And so it's just it's a dead nail. That was what people would call it. And so this is where that's thought to come from. Basically, it's just dead as a doornail. So every nail you would pound in, you would bend over. And so this also brings the question, why not, you know, this same thing was done in lots of other woodworking things, this clenching uh, method. So why is it dead of a, dead as a doornail? It's just thought because it sounds good, you know, compared to like, I don't know, dead as a coffin nail. Nice bit of alliteration. Yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah it just kind of, uh, the euphony of the phrase sort of like fits. It sounds really nice to the ear. Um, so why is that? Why are these so satisfying? Like, isn't it? It's super satisfying, like to hear a phrase and then be like, oh, and this led to this and this led to this and this led to this. It's very like, I don't know, it's very pleasing somehow to, to, to discover this. Yeah. It's just etymology. Yeah. I like, I do like, I do like all our, uh, etymology ones. Um, but those never do what they never do well. I don't know. Maybe it's just interesting to us. I guess. I don't know. It's, it's. Maybe it's not interesting. I don't know if interesting is the right thing. I'd just be like, it's satisfying. It's not like, oh my God, I have to know this. But when you find out, you're like, oh yeah, that is nice. Yeah. It's, 
Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, maybe people don't go to YouTube for satisfaction. They go to be entertained. But yeah. Not exactly the most clickable titles either. Like, you know, the origin of dead as a doornail. <laughs> <laughs> it's like not something to click. But so where next, please. Yeah. So a lot of people, like I said, some some people attribute this to Charles Dickens. But, you know, that obviously it goes back way further. And then more people attribute it to William Shakespeare, like I said. And but it turns out. So we have the first known intra, uh, instance was uh, from William Langland. And he was tied, he was translating a French poem called, I don't know, you have a go at it. Uh, dude, I've, this one is um, Guillaume, Guillaume de Palerne, yeah. Palnier, Palnier, Pal- sure. Anyway, in 1350, <laughs> and it said, I am dead as doornail. What is it? It looks like half. German. Well, it's kind of the old English, right? And so you'll like the next one because it it's actually we have it translated from old English. Uh, and so this was also mm-hmm. the same the same guy also wrote uh, a couple years later, and he was writing uh, the vision of William concerning Pierre's plowman. And so the translated from old English to more modern said, "Faith without works is feebler than nothing, and dead as a doornail." Yep, would have never have guessed that. Absolutely no chance. <laughs> So that that seems to be that's that's where the phrase kind of came. And the same guy wrote two things that uh, that had it. So who knows? Maybe he coined the the phrase in the first place. But it caught on. People liked the sound of it apparently. And uh, yeah, I like the sound of it. I think I should start using it more. Yeah. So that's why dead is a doornail in and not life. like dead is a coffin nail. It just doesn't have the same ring to it. It doesn't. Should we do some feedback and discussion before we wrap things today? We should do some reviews. Do some things like that. I I have something with me. Oh yeah. Oh. Do you have this? I have, as previously discussed. Are we gonna? I have some spam. I have some spam. I, I, it's not at my desk at the moment. Are we gonna eat it on this one? Uh, it's not your desk. This has been a long episode. We can do it next week. All right, sounds good. I, I feel like we've been teasing the the trying of the spam. I'm not for looking a very forward to this time. either. So <laughs> that's good. No, no, I can't say I am. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's absolutely delay it until next week. Then, should we look at some reviews? Uh, yes. Cool. Um, Professor Fred Professor Fred says better than their great YouTube shows five stars Davin proves he is the researcher of the group absolutely <laughs> true but Simon proves he's more than a talking head arguably true this is a fun conversation <laughs> between friends as they discuss a wide variety of topics their interviews were great but not well received so they've dropped those See, we learn. If you aren't thrilled with the first few episodes, skip ahead. They do a lot of format changes. I have personally enjoyed them all. Great job, guys. I was disappointed I like in the, uh, the you know, having to drop the interviews because one fun thing about that was like you email someone and you're like, hey, I'd like to interview for this, you know, reasonable, reasonably popular show. And they often say yes. And so it's like you get to talk to these really interesting people. And so it's like, you know, now we don't get to do that. You know, I used to do a show where I interviewed authors like back before we were doing YouTube or kind of in a crossover period. Dude, people really love being interviewed and they're generally really happy to give time. And, you know, like like when uh, we asked, uh, like, like, for instance, Hank Green, we were like, yeah, do you want to do you want to come on the show? And he was like, sure. But then we we ended up dropping it. So we never had him on. And so I would have liked I had many questions for Hank Green about things because we run similar businesses. And I I like to know how he did stuff and uh you know, how, how he runs things. It's always interesting to, to see because not a lot of people run businesses like the specifically like do what we do. And so, you know, interesting to see how other people do things. Yeah, I, I really don't know many people who do what we do. No. 
No. And it's um, in some ways it's similar to other businesses, but also a little bit different. And so, you know, little things. It's interesting it's to learn. It's got its quirks yeah. for sure. Yeah. Still on my on my list of things to do in the in the long term. I really would love to do an interview. Yeah. Like interview show. I really enjoy doing it with the authors and I think doing it with with YouTubers would be fun. Or like Mm-hmm. podcasters, creative professionals, whatever you yeah, want to call it. It's just interesting to meet, you know, people who do interesting things and just have a chat. 100%. Paul.Nee99. By the way, we only have new five-star reviews this week, so I'm not picking and cheesing. It's been good. <laughs> do you think people uh, people are afraid after the after the last one where I ranted? <laughs> they, if, you, if you're wondering what we're talking about, Davin. Normally we're, I, we discussed this at length last week, so I won't go into it too much, but Normally when we get criticism, we're like, okay, we take it on board and this show has changed a lot because of criticism to what it is today. Uh, there was one David just vehemently agreed with. So if you want to hear, I, I, I don't know, I'd describe it as maybe a little bit of a rant, but a justified yeah. and fun rant. No, it was... Go listen to last week's episode. Yeah, I, it was... Uh, it generally takes a lot to irritate me, but, you know, there are buttons. And, yeah. you know... I saw that review and as soon as I saw it, I was like, this is going to rile David up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, ninety nine says, love the show. I used to play the TIFO videos in the background while I worked. So the podcast is ideal for me. I don't feel like I'm missing anything and the content is of the same caliber. I enjoy the wide range of topics discussed and never feel like I'm missing any background knowledge being talked down to or caught by clickbait. Davin and Simon have wonderful chemistry. That's nice to hear. Davin is more serious and good at keeping the conversation going, uh, conversation more or less on track, while Simon keep things, <laughs> keeps things light and entertaining, yet still relevant and informative. After today's tangents, I'm not sure if I'll agree with you, Polney99, but that's kind of you. If you want to revise your review, you can. They have come a long way since the first episode and are still evolving. I can't wait to see where they take it from here. That was very nice. That is. Shall I do one more or are we wrapping it there for today? I know we've had a long episode. Yeah, we might as well do one more. Lucky you, Stormageddon161. Cool name, by the way. Oh, this is ultra short. Five stars, food for the brain. I quite enjoy these podcasts. Have been listening for quite a while. Definitely worth the listen. Good. Thank you. Excellent. That's kind of you. Excellent. Very short. We're wrapping it up there. Next week. Do we have the subject for next week? I think we do, right? I think we I'll do. Have a look at this. It's called The Truce. Tell me, tease it. The Truce. I'm not going to say what Ooh. truce, but it is, uh, you know, related to... I'm not going to say the truce. Come, come listen to what this is about. It's actually one of my favorite um, stories we've we've you know, kind of looked at. This this sledgehammer one was actually among like probably my top ten uh, thing we've ever we've ever done uh, as far as like look up. The, I just really like the story of, of of this the Christmas Carol and the truce is I wouldn't say it's in the top ten, but it is definitely one of the top you know fifty. I really like the story of the truce as well. So come listen to that. I like the truce a little bit more than the sledgehammer. Really? It's, you know? Uh, yeah. Like, I, I very much like the bit uh, in the one we did. I mean, so I find it all interesting, to be fair, especially kind of like these these swords. But in the sledgehammer, the one bit I really love is the the report that basically does all this crazy illuminating of how bad things were. Yeah. This is just like a wonderful, like, little bit piece of like a turning point in history. The truce... We'll talk about it next week. I love it. Stay tuned. It's a good one. Subscribe. Leave a review. We've got a review contest. I feel I'm just trailing off now, but I totally forgot to mention reviews. If you uh, if you leave us a review, when we get to 300 reviews on iTunes US, we're going to go through all of the reviews of the past and give someone an Amazon gift voucher of $300. 
which is a lot, I guess, because there's 300 reviews. But we did it at 100 and then 200 and then 300. It kind of got a bit out of control, I suppose. But there you go. Leave us a review. Why not? And until next time. Star Wars is not science fiction. I don't want to go through this again. It's fantasy. It's fantasy.